I turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue studying the latter part of the book of Genesis that covers the life of Joseph. We come now to Genesis 45 verses 1 through 15. And this again is God's holy word as he inspired Moses to write here infallibly to record the history of his dealings with his people, here particularly the life of Joseph, and as we'll be reading this morning, of the reuniting of Joseph with his brothers as he reveals himself to them. So we'll read now, let's attend with reverence, to the word of the living God, Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine." And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing. In past weeks, we have read about several tests to which Joseph put his older brothers, the ones who had sold him into slavery in Egypt. The last and the greatest of these was his having his servants place a silver cup in Benjamin's grain sack, and then accuse him of stealing it. Would the ten older brothers abandon 
Benjamin or would they stick by him? Would they grieve or would they be callous as they had been callous when they sold Joseph to the slave traders who brought him to Egypt? It's clear that the Lord has worked a great change in the character of these men, the ten older brothers of Joseph, over the years. Among themselves, they had acknowledged their guilt before God for what they had done to Joseph. Now they're going to stick by Benjamin. In fact, they already have stuck by Benjamin. Uh, All of them returned to Joseph when Benjamin was arrested. They could easily have gone free. Joseph's servant, his steward, told them they could. And they could have said, oh, well, I guess that's the way things are. Joseph, go ahead, or rather, uh, Benjamin, go ahead, go back to, to Egypt, to this man who accuses you of stealing, and we'll go on back to our father. They could have gone free, but they remained with Benjamin. And even more impressively, Judah volunteered to bear Benjamin's punishment in his place. And we saw that they had a grave concern for what returning without Benjamin might do to their father. Whereas before they had had no concern. What would telling their father that Joseph had died do to him? Judah said, For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Now moved by all of this, that's where this account picks up as we started reading in chapter 45 today. So moved by all of this, Joseph can no longer bear to keep his identity a secret from his brothers. So in today's scripture lesson, he reveals himself to his brothers. From his words to them, we see a great theme of Genesis reinforced. This is something that has been in the background of just about every passage that we've read. It's really been there really in all of them, but it's been a point that I could point out is somehow referred to in most every passage. God is sovereign. And we see his sovereignty displayed in the fact that he even uses sin for his own good purposes. He sinlessly uses sin. And under that great lesson we see some applications that are helpful for us to remember. Because God is sovereign, be patient. It's much easier to be patient with difficult circumstances if we remember the sovereignty of God. Be forgiving. Even when people wrong us, it is still not outside of the purview of God's plan for us. And thus, third, be ready to reconcile with those who have wronged you. Moses tells us at the beginning of chapter 45, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. The everyone there obviously is is his Egyptian servants, not the brothers. So here, unable to contain himself any longer, he sends all of his Egyptian servants out so that he could reveal himself to his brothers. Sending his servants out shows his forgiveness 
and his desire to be reconciled to these men. He has no fear of what his brothers might do to him if they're alone. Also, he wisely makes reconciliation easier by not embarrassing his brothers in front of others. This is something that we have to uh, remember ourselves. No one else needs to know what had occurred between these men in the past. And that's a good example for us to follow uh, if you're able. Making private sins and grievances public will often make it harder for the two parties or the more to be reconciled. And even if you are totally forgiving of what wrong someone has committed against you, the people who love you might have a harder time being forgiving of that person who wronged you. you know, think of a maybe a young man whose heart is broken, but then he later wants to reconcile with that young woman and they, they want to, to maybe get married. But what if he poured out all this to his mom and told her about how he felt hurt by this young woman? Well, what kind of relationship is that woman going to have with her mother-in-law? Now, if she knows all the details of how uh, this her son felt wrong, I think she's going to take sides, isn't she? So even when you're totally forgiving of somebody who may have wronged you, the people who love you may still hold a grudge. And so it's wise when something is not a public sin that we don't need to make it public necessarily. And Joseph's servants who were loyal to him might resent his older brothers. What, what might Pharaoh do if he finds out what these guys did to Joseph? Moses says, and he wept aloud. So here there, he sent all the Egyptian servants out. He's alone with his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. That suggests, by the way, that Joseph's house was really part of a bigger palace complex that was the Pharaoh's palace, which would make sense considering his high office. He was probably working closely with the Pharaoh on a nearly daily basis. Moses tells us in verse 3, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. No doubt they were shocked and dumbfounded at first when he said, I am Joseph. They maybe didn't even hear the rest of the question. Does my father still live? You know, they're, uh, they're just going to be so shocked. Really, How could this be Joseph? This man with authority over all Egypt is their brother who for all they knew had died in hard labor years ago in some rock quarry or something. Beyond that, they were dismayed, Moses tells us. The Hebrew literally says they trembled before him. They were frightened. What might Joseph do to them? Remember what they had done to him? And now he's got the upper hand, and now he has the power with a shout his servants can be back in the room and do whatever they please with these men. His brothers who had plotted his murder and then sold him into slavery and never once in 22 years gone looking for him. Will he take revenge? In the past, he 
has spoken roughly to them. That's the, the word that was used to describe how he's spoken to them. Is he not rightly angry at their wicked treatment of him? They, they've acknowledged that they treated him wrong. But instead, Joseph says, please come near to me. When they draw near, he says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice it is God whom Joseph recognizes was orchestrating these events. Certainly his brothers sinned against him, but God was using that all along to put Joseph into this position to preserve life, as he says. He will save his family from this famine and many, many more people besides. An entire civilization is saved by Joseph's wisdom. Because God put him in this position. Concerning this, J.G. Voss writes, Those who irreverently speak of God's mysterious foreordination as if it were a mere abstract doctrine held by a few odd people called Calvinists should ponder the history of Joseph. Divine foreordination of all that comes to pass is no more incidental feature in the Bible, oh, excuse me, is no mere incidental feature in the Bible. It is deeply embedded in the scriptures, Old Testament and New, and cannot be removed from them without violently tearing many a historical narrative apart. It is a major point of the Bible, and especially here of the book of Genesis, that God is sovereign, and that he even uses sin sinlessly for his own good purposes. As Voss says, that's no mere incidental suggestion of this part of Genesis. It's the main point of this passage and a major theme of the whole book. Joseph says in verse 6, For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So he has, of course, been made aware of this by the dream that the Lord sent Pharaoh and that he was given the ability to interpret. So he knows that there are going to be seven years of famine, there's still five to go, of course, that tells us how earlier I referred to 22 years he's been separated from his family. We know this because we know he was 17 at the time. And uh, there's been two years of famine after the seven years of plenty since Joseph stood before Pharaoh when he, he was 30 years old. So that makes him about 39 now. He's been separated from his family for 22 years. But he's not bearing a grudge. It would be very easy to bear a grudge. He does not harbor the kind of resentment which leads to the kind of hatred that his older brothers had once bore toward him. Rather, he continues to reiterate that this was God's sovereign plan, ordaining and bringing about all of these events. So notice how many times he keeps coming back saying, but God... God, God, God did this. As the shorter catechism answer to question 7 goes, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. 
Joseph is teaching that very thing here. He says, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Notice how this is for the Lord's glory. Could he have not sent the famine in the first place? Sure. Could he have decreed perfect peace and stability for Israel in all of those years? Absolutely. But this order of events gave the Lord the greater glory, which is his due. The famine and Joseph's extraordinary position allowed that the posterity, the descendants of Israel, the visible church of that day, would be preserved in such a way that there would be no mistake that it was God who had orchestrated the whole thing. It will not, no one can look at this honestly and say that was simply an accident of history. That was the hand of God. Joseph continues in verse 8, So now, he's saying to his brothers, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. That's a common expression we find describing the, the royal vizier, the office that, that Joseph holds here. He's as a father to Pharaoh. And he says, And lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So because he recognizes this was all God's plan, Joseph has this easier time forgiving his brothers. Yes, they are guilty. But Joseph is so focused on what God has been doing through these sins of his brothers that he rejoices to see such a wondrous unfolding of the Lord's plans. Such a Focus on God's sovereignty in your life can help you be patient with whatever circumstances you find yourself in and to be forgiving of others. Now this uh, doesn't have to do with, with sin, but I think of the, uh, in a direct sense anyway, but I think of the uh, circumstances that Kim and I were under. It was really frustrating how slow the process of getting, uh, getting licensed as foster parents was. And uh, COVID, of course, slowed that down, and uh, there are still frustrating things about the foster system, things that I think ought to be changed. Um, but, uh, but of course, uh, one of the major things was getting our fingerprints looked at by the FBI and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. So uh, what seemed like a bunch of frustrating delays to us uh, got us licensed quite a bit later than we might have been. But if we had been licensed earlier, we might not have been available to take in these little baby girls that we now have in our home and whom we might, if God wills, get to adopt. The Lord knows what he's doing. And recognizing that sovereignty helps us to be patient through events like that. And so we were, even then, though, as I said, we were, there were times we were frustrated, we were able to curb that frustration by knowing, well, God must be doing something with this. And now, in hindsight, we can see part, at least, of what he was doing with that. Such a focus as Joseph has here on God's sovereignty can certainly help us to be patient in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. In his book, Remarkable Providences, 
the Puritan minister Increase Mather uh, recounts many ways in which God's good plan for the New England colonies worked out in the early decades of the establishment of Providence and and if uh, not Providence of uh, uh, Plymouth first Providence comes later uh, <clears throat> what would be Rhode Island but Plymouth and then uh, then Massachusetts and some of the other colonies what would become Connecticut and New Hampshire. And he tells one story of a, a family on board a ship which wrecked off of the coast of Massachusetts. Several of the children of that family were lost, but the father led the survivors in family worship, praising God even as they were waiting on the rocks out away from the shore to be rescued. For he knew that the Lord was doing good things even through this terrible tragedy. Joseph similarly is focused not on the tragedy of his circumstances. If he were to focus on that, he could be a, a woe is me kind of person. you know, And, and oh, why did this happen to me? And, and you brothers, how dare you have done this? He doesn't focus on the horror of what his brothers had done to him, but on the Lord and what he has been doing. And that has made him very forgiving and patient. He tells them, starting in verse 9, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Goshen was a region in the northeastern part of the area around the Nile Delta. So we think about the ancient division of the land. Upper Egypt is, is the higher elevation part of Egypt to the south in the Nile Valley. And then when you get down toward the place where the Nile spreads out, in fact, this is why we call those uh, uh, parts of rivers when they start to spread out into many fingers because of all of the, um, the deposits that the river has made of soil. They're alluvial deposits, I think they're called. Uh, and the river has many little fingers that spread out because, because the general shape of that was that of the Greek letter delta. Uh, they called this region, the Greeks called this region of Egypt, the delta. And that's where we get that so when we refer to other rivers that do similar things, like the Mississippi has a delta region where its fingers spread out in many, in many different channels before it reaches the Gulf of Mexico. So here, of course, the... the uh, uh, part of Egypt known as Lower Egypt is that region that's down there toward the delta and around the delta, the, the part where the Nile spreads out into many channels before reaching the Mediterranean Sea. And to the northeast of that, or in that northeastern region there, is where the land of Goshen is. And it was one that was very fitting for the grazing of cattle and sheep, the grazing of livestock. And now all this sudden revelation, when here Joseph says, come on, I'm alive, 
uh, bring, go back to our father, uh, bring him down, tell him that I can settle you in Goshen. It's a perfect place for you to go. This must have come as quite a shock to the sons of Jacob. I think if I were one of them, I would probably not even be processing half the stuff that, that Joseph's saying now about going, go, back to, go back to our father, get him, bring him down, you'll settle in Goshen. They certainly, or they probably found it hard to believe. Joseph points out that he's no longer speaking through an interpreter as an Egyptian would. That's what he's probably partly reassuring them. You know, see, I'm speaking to you. You can see my mouth, right? I'm speaking to you in Hebrew, and no doubt without an accent. He says, and behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So he'd been speaking through an interpreter, Moses told us, and now he's saying, look, it's my own mouth speaking to you. That should help you confirm that this is real. It also might just be a figure of speech of saying, I'm telling the truth. But certainly, I think, at least in part, he's saying, look, it's me. I'm the one that's actually speaking to you. You can hear my voice. He tells them, so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Think of that as, as we also think of Joseph prefiguring Christ as he's a type of Christ, that, that this is what we are to do, isn't it? We're to go and tell of the glory of Christ to the world. Well, then Moses tells us, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. By the way, when he says, you see and my brother Benjamin see, you notice that he's, he's noting there's even you, the ones who sinned against me, he's noting them as, yes, in a different category than his brother Benjamin, but as ones to whom he is talking and whom he is expressing his forgiveness. But Moses tells us, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. These are great signs of forgiveness and reconciliation. Deep love for that younger brother who was probably still a baby when he went into slavery. And forgiveness and reconciliation with the brothers who had actually wronged him. The ancient church father, Caesarius of Arles, who lived from about A.D. 460 to 542, described this situation beautifully. He wrote, You have admired the chastity of Joseph. Now behold his generosity. He repays hatred with charity. When he he saw his brothers, or rather enemies in his brothers, he gave evidence of the affection of his love by his pious grief when he wanted to be recognized by them. He tenderly kissed each one of them and wept over them individually. As Joseph moistened the necks of his frightened brothers with his refreshing tears, he washed away their hatred with the tears of his charity." He loved them always as with the love of their living father and dead brother. He did not recall that that pit into which he had been thrown to be murdered. He did not think of himself a brother sold for a price. Instead, by returning good for evil, 
Even then he fulfilled the precepts of the apostles that were not yet given. Therefore, by considering the sweetness of true charity, blessed Joseph, with God's help, was eager to repel from his heart the poison of envy with which he knew his brothers had been struck. What a good example for us. And what an image of Christ who died for us even when we were enemies and sinners. So the major theological lesson of this passage is also a major theme of Genesis. God is sovereign. And Joseph keeps coming back to that, saying, you did this, but God sent me ahead of you. You didn't send me here. Well, literally they did. (laughs) But he's saying, but God was the one really doing this. For example, in verse 9, Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. The Lord even sinlessly used the sins of Joseph's brothers, as Joseph says in verse 8. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. From this lesson, we note three applications. Because we know God is sovereign, number one, be patient. If God is in control, we have little reason to feel frustrated or anxious about circumstances. I remember uh, when I was first uh, being uh, candidating at the for the pulpit in Sparta, Illinois, years ago. I went there, and the, at the time, uh, Jim McMahon, a retired minister, was living in the parsonage, and, and uh, he was getting ready to go back to seminary because he wanted to do a refresher on uh, Hebrew. And so by the time I would move there, he would have vacated it anyway. And, uh, and so uh, Elder took me there to look over the, the home. And it was in the evening, and, and uh, Jim was hoping to get to bed early, so we were trying not to, to, uh, to take too long. But we tried to, there was, there was, we had been told there was something strange about the windows in the living room of this house, and the elder who was there uh, unlatched the window, and, and immediately the top portion of that window just came crashing down. It didn't break, but it just came sliding down. It did, give, it did uh, smash his fingers, give him uh, purple fingernails for a while there. Uh, but it took us, I don't know, maybe it was a half an hour just to get that window back up. We had to go get tools and <laughs> had to gently hammer it and, and get it just to move back up. And uh, I kept apologizing to Jim McMahon because we were delaying his bedtime as he wanted to get to bed early that night. And if, uh, if we just left things alone, he would, everything would have been fine for him. But he, he just said, well... This obviously was God's providence. Why, why should I be offended by anything? And he, and he, he told me, no, don't, don't let things like this get to you. God, God ordained these things. And I saw what patience he had because of his focus on the sovereignty of God. A second lesson we learn is be forgiving. Yes, sin is sin. And we don't wink at sin any more than God should wink at sin. He's just. Uh, sin is wrong by definition. But if you keep yourself focused on what God is doing, even with human evil, even when that evil is committed against you, it becomes a lot harder to hold grudges over it. 
to be resentful about it. Indeed, when you're forgiving, you reflect the very character of your Heavenly Father. Oh, what if God, every time I sought Him, remembered every wrong I had committed against Him? Notice how Joseph keeps focused on the Lord. Verse 5, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And verse 8, So now it was God, now it was not you, rather, who sent me here, but God. Be forgiving. And third, be ready to reconcile with those who have wronged you. As verse 15 tells us, Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And what a great picture that is of Jesus Christ, and of our living God, who is ready to forgive all who are in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray. Lord our God, we praise and thank you for the sovereign power whereby your good purposes always come to pass. Nothing can overthrow or thwart or turn aside your plans. Help us, therefore, to be patient and also to be forgiving and ready to reconcile with those who have wronged us, that we might reflect Christ all the more to the world around us as we pray in his precious name. Amen.